continuing to study the book of Genesis. These early chapters have to be combed rather carefully to understand many foundational issues the Lord puts in place here. I'm reading today from the second chapter, beginning at verse 8 through verse 17. We have not yet dealt with the issue of God created man, male and female. We'll face that, Lord willing, the next couple of weeks as we look ahead at what is in the later part of chapter 2. But for now, a very important section, and I ask you to listen to God's Word as I read, beginning at verse 8 of Genesis 2. This is the Word of God. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, and it winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat of any tree in the garden." But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. This is the word of the living God. I once talked with a believer who I know trusted in the Lord as Savior. But he was frank in admitting to me perhaps more frank than some Christians would be, but you would perhaps share what he said. We were talking about the Bible, and he said, I genuinely believe that God does speak in the Bible, and yet, Pastor, I have a great struggle with Genesis, especially chapters 2 and 3, because when I read there about what sounds like magical forbidden fruit on a tree and a woman created from a rib and what apparently looks like a talking snake, those things to me sound more like mythology than history. Well, he was right that the language of Genesis 1 through 3 is laden with symbolism. It's not exactly the way we describe history most of the time, but it does depict historic actions by God. Moses, the One who wrote the words down was not present when these things happened, but God opened his mind to Moses by the Holy Spirit, and he wrote these things in a unique style that God gave him to write. A German Christian of the 20th century, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, said about the early chapters of Genesis, who can speak of the wondrous realities of the Garden of Eden except in pictures? And he said, pictures are not lies. They are symbols 
that allow meaning to shine through them. C.S. Lewis also talked about related things. And when he heard people label the Bible as mythology, Lewis, who was an expert in literature and mythology of all different nations, said, Holy Scripture must be seen as the only myth that just so happens to be true. Bruce Waltke is an Old Testament scholar of our day who trusts in the Word of God in a deep way, and Waltke says in a fine commentary on the book, Genesis certainly is history. However, the first three chapters are not a straightforward journalistic report. It is unlike other history. Parts of Genesis, he said, especially in 1 through 3, are an artistic and pictorial depiction of truths about our origins. Moses was presenting divinely inspired truth in images that can be understood by our imperfect minds. I think what Walke was saying was something like this. If you had the responsibility of teaching a group of four-year-olds something, you probably realized that if you were able to set in front of them some pictures that, that showed them, that illustrated the truth you were trying to teach, that would be more effective than handing them a complex textbook and saying, here, read this, it will explain it. When, of course, a four-year-old can't even read the textbook. And you might say, I think that's what the Lord was doing in Genesis 2 and 3. He was depicting eternal truth in pictures and symbols that would be memorable so that what He wanted us to know would come down to our kindergarten level of thinking where we could see what He was trying to say in pictorial fashion. Well, today we engage chapter 2 of Genesis, which is a transitional passage. We're all thinking about transitions right now in the United States. Well, this is a transitional chapter. It makes the bridge between chapter 1, when God had created the perfect world and all the wonders that were in it, and He rested from His labors, and what is coming, and most of us know it's coming, in chapter 3, the great disaster, the great fall, as we call it, of mankind into sin. But here's chapter 2 in between, in which the Lord lays the stage, as it were, with some truths we have to know. The Garden of Eden becomes a stage setting for the exercise of our human freedom to be seen in chapter 3. The early scientist Blaise Pascal was a Christian man, and he wrote about the paradox that's present here in the early part of Genesis, saying this, Man's greatness and man's wretchedness are both so evident in Genesis that the true religion must be the one that can account for the apparent contradiction between the greatness and the grandeur for which we were created and the wretchedness that we have brought upon ourselves. As we explore this transition today, I have three points to bring you. First, I'm going to consider that God's historic garden was also His temple. Secondly, I'm going to probe the symbolism of the two trees that are spoken about there. And thirdly, we're going to look at the idea of mankind put on probation. First then, God's historic garden that was also His temple. 
Genesis 1.8 says the Lord God planted a garden in the east in Eden and put the man there that he had formed. Some people have the idea in mind that Eden was the whole world, the whole, the whole of creation. But Genesis seems to say, no, it was a pretty specific place that the Lord God had designated for the home of Adam. Now, to us in Lancaster County, the, the name Eden is pretty familiar. It's a neighborhood not very far away from here that gives its name to a number of things. I wonder if you've thought about the meaning of that name ever before. The dictionary will tell you that the primary meaning of Eden is the word delight. Delight. When I lived in Maryland, there actually was a little town called Delight. Believe it or not, there also was a little town not so far from our home called Boring. It really was. And there was a church there called the Boring United Methodist Church. I kid, I kid you not, it's a real place. You can go see it. But Eden is a place of delight. Now, if you looked at a thesaurus and looked for the word Eden, you would find a number of synonyms. Uh, synonyms like utopia, dreamland, paradise. And you know the picture you have in your mind, a place that's very lush, it's very beautiful, everything grows there, and it's stunning just to look around and walk through such a place. We think maybe of Longwood Gardens, not so far from here, but this is not a man-made garden, it's, it's God's garden. But the problem, too, is that when we think of Eden, unfortunately, our minds tend to take us down the track to associate it with a fantasy land. Those of you that like fantasy literature might think of the land of Narnia or Middle-earth or other kingdoms that are in great works of fiction. Well, Eden is not a fantasy, and it's not a fiction. And the way we know that is because Genesis 2 takes real pains to identify its place markers, to set it in the real world for us and and give us some indicators of the boundaries. Four distinct rivers are described that give you a, a sense of being able to frame this land and know generally at least where it is. Two of these rivers, the last two, the Tigris and Euphrates, are probably rivers you've heard of, and you could turn to a map of the Middle East and find them to the northern part of Iraq, which gets so much attention today, up into the boundaries of Turkey. The interesting thing is that the other two rivers, the Gihon and the Pishon, are rivers that for unknown reasons don't exist today. And we say, well, God was giving us something real here and describing the land as a land where gold was found and onyx and other things were found there. And the people who received this text from Moses said, yes, I know where that is. But today, the Gihon and the Pishon, at least, don't exist. Now, why is that? We can't answer. There are those who speculate that perhaps the great flood of Noah somehow obliterated these rivers as it did many things to change the landscape of the earth. But the point from Genesis is that Eden was a specific place in time-space reality, somewhere near the Taurus Mountains of modern-day eastern Turkey or Armenia, a section of Turkey. Now, I have to wonder if God did not deliberately allow the location of Eden to be obscured, and there's certainly no longer any wonderful, fantastic garden in that region as anyone would go there and explore it. 
But I wonder if God allowed that to be obscured because he knew that if we found it, and if we said, if we could drive the stake in the ground and say, here it is, what would we do? We'd probably build a theme park there, wouldn't we? And we'd say, whoa, here's the biblical Eden. Come and enjoy it. But that isn't what he ever meant us to do. Dr. James Boyce wrote about this passage saying, Christianity is an an historical faith. It is not a matter of abstract concepts. It deals with real people who lived in real places, who experienced the real redemptive acts of God. Eden is a real place, or was at least, in the way it's described here in Scripture. Now, what do I mean by telling you that God's historic garden was also his temple? Maybe that's a strange idea to your mind. Well, here's what I mean. We know that God was wonderfully and uniquely present there, and that he had fellowship there with the man whom he had made. If you go just a little bit forward into chapter 3, verse 8, you read of, of God being pictured as a human being. The only way we know how to describe God, even if he's not exactly like us, this is how we describe him. The theologian will call that anthropomorphic language, if you want the big word for it. Chapter 3, 8 says, The Lord was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. There's a sense that God came to this garden to fellowship with the man he had made. And when man comes into the knowledge and relationship with God, what he's doing is worshiping God, taking delight in God and in the glories of the one who made him. And we can believe here that between the first man and God, there was a kind of very deep, implicit communion, trust, interchange, God spoke to the man, and the man praised his God and took delight in the Lord. And trust was the posture that Adam had there. He trusted his God, absolutely. He didn't think about questioning God or doubting God or, you know, railing at God, saying, why is this happening or anything like that. There was this wonderful intimacy in that place of worship. Now, we know, and I'm not going to get too far ahead of the story, but we know that This intimacy was disrupted by sin in Genesis 3. And there are theologians who would rather beautifully trace what we call the typology or or a symbol that sort of reappears and keeps coming back throughout the Bible as this worship center in Eden, you might say, is what man was trying to get back to when God told Moses to build a tabernacle in the desert and find that as the place where the presence of God would dwell. And then later, a a temple in Jerusalem that Solomon built. And the Lord said, my presence will be there. I will meet with you there as you come in prayer. And you might even say that every church structure ever built since then is an attempt to recover that sense of sacred space, of meeting with God and sharing in the intimacy of God and knowing Him and taking pleasure in Him that Adam first enjoyed with the Lord in Eden. You can trace that theme throughout Scripture. This historic Garden of Eden was the first temple for divine and human fellowship and worship. And in really a matter of speaking, you could call Adam a priest. The first priest who spoke directly with the living God in that beautiful, splendid, live temple 
pulsing with life that the Lord had made for him to dwell in. God's historic garden was also his temple. Now, secondly, at the heart of Genesis 2, we come upon symbolism that puzzles some people and throws others off course. We have here the symbolism of two trees. In verse 9, we read, in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, there are some who read that and think that that's talking about one tree, that the tree of life was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but I think the major understanding is that there were two trees there. That's a more common sense understanding. And then in verse 17, after giving the man permission, remember, God said earlier than this, take everything I've made. You have my permission to enjoy this creation, take and eat and enjoy. You'll find abundance. You'll have no difficulty feeding yourself. It's all for you, in a manner of speaking. But now in verse 17 comes something different. As the Lord abruptly says this, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, you wouldn't be blamed if you asked, what is going on here? This seems like a complete interruption of everything, of all the goodness and the the intimacy and and the wonders that, that have been going on. Suddenly we have, don't do this, and a penalty, you'll die. Let's talk about what these trees are if we can. First, the tree of life is one of the Bible's outstanding symbols. It makes its first appearance here in our text, but then it resurfaces in other places in the Bible, especially at the very end of the the Scripture. The tree of life, you know, I've, I've actually seen sets of tree of life bookends in people's study, you know, bronze or something, tree, luxe tree on one side and on the other side, and you keep your books between. Well, that's not a bad way to think of the tree of life, because here it is in Genesis, and the main time you find it again is in the last chapter of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2, in fact, God promises believers to him who overcomes, that is, the one who remains faithful to Christ to the very end, I will give him to eat of the tree of life. And then in the last chapter, Revelation 22, verse 2, we find this tree of life growing in the center of the new Jerusalem, the the place that represents the dwelling of God in heaven with his believers once sin has been banished and Satan has been destroyed. And there we read that the tree of life bears its fruit all 12 months of the year and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. You know, just down the street here on Oregon Pike, if you go north in front of the racket center, there's one of the most magnificent trees anywhere around here. It's got to be 100 years old. It stands out there in front of the parking lot of the racquetball center. And I think it's an oak. I'm not absolutely sure, but it's a, it's a wonderfully shaped tree. If an artist wanted to, to paint a, just a perfect tree, he'd probably go for that one. What does the tree of life look like? I don't know what variety it was or anything else. It, it evidently had some kind of fruit on it. But its great importance is as a symbol. And it's a symbol of God's life, which he has breathed into humanity. Remember in, just before this, in chapter 2, verse 7, it talks about God 
breathing his life, his own spirit, into this man of clay that he made out of nothing. So man already has the life of God. It's not as though we have to go find the tree of life and pluck some kind of fruit and eat it, and and that will give us God's life. No, Adam had the life of God. He had the image of God. This tree just represented what God had already made. And as a matter of fact, Psalm 1 carries out that symbolism when it describes the godly man or woman as a tree growing by streams of water, lush and green and and you know, preserved through all the, the dry times by the stream it is planted by. By the way, there's a little side observation for you to know here, and that is if you have any idea what the Jewish menorah is used in many celebrations of Judaism, you can probably picture it in your mind. It's a, it's a candlestick that branches up, and it has seven uh, arms to it which hold candles and is used in Hanukkah and other kinds of celebrations. But the Jewish menorah comes from Exodus when God gave instructions to Moses to build a golden lampstand to put in the tabernacle. What was the tabernacle? The place where God met with man. Now stop and think a minute. See how consistent the Bible is? God met with man in Eden, and the tree of life was there. God met with man in the tabernacle, and the lampstand was there, which was built apparently as a reproduction of the tree of life. In fact, if you read the description of it, it was said to have in metal, of course, uh, inscribed and, and molded buds and blossoms molded upon its branches. It was a symbol of the tree of life in the place of worship. So you see, the tree of life represents the blessing, the greatest blessing God can give. His own life, His Holy Spirit, breathed into man uniquely as no other creature has it. And there it stood at the center of the garden, standing for the blessing of God. But then there's this other tree there. The second one is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it seems to represent not life, but a divine prohibition. Now, every child and every adult knows the story of of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. I don't know how many times I've read that story to my grandchildren. And you know the story of Snow White went to live with the dwarfs and the wicked queen wanted her dead, tried as hard as she could to get rid of Snow White and came disguised one day as an old woman and gave Snow White the poison apple, which Snow White ate and fell down as if she were dead. I think the story says, you know, of course, there's going to be a happy ending when the prince comes and kisses her. But she fell down from the poison of that apple as if she were dead. Now, there are many people who look upon what happens in Genesis 2 and 3 with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil with some kind of a Snow White idea in their mind. Adam and Eve ate the poisoned apple. It wasn't an apple tree. It never says it was, folks. They ate this poison fruit, and the poison of of knowing sin came into their systems. Could I somehow drive that idea out of your mind once and for all? This is not poison fruit. It's not, in fact, a poison tree. It's not even a bad tree. It's God's tree. He made it. He made it to stand for something, and what it stood for was obedience to Him faith and trusting obedience. You see, God had had put Adam in the place of blessing, the place of abundance, the place of worship. How could he give him anything more than he had given him? But he said, look, in so many words, 
What you need to know, Adam, is that I am God, and you're not. And here's how you'll know this. You'll obey me. I ask you not to do this one thing. I give you everything, but I don't give you this. You see, this tree plays its part in the drama through the opportunity for obedience that it offers, not in any magical qualities or chemical potencies of its fruit. That's not what it's about. It confronts Adam with God's will and gives him an opportunity to say yes to the will of God or else say no by doing what he was told not to do. It asks Adam to prove, will you be my humble disciple Will you be the man who enjoys my presence and believes me and trusts me, or will you make a decision that you have to be God, that you have to put yourself on my throne? And so thirdly, after the trees are explained briefly, we come to this idea of mankind put on probation. Now, you might say, why did God do this? We love to question God. Why did you do this, God? Everything was going so well. It couldn't be going any better. Why would you put this opportunity in there for things to go wrong? If you had just left that tree out and said, Adam, enjoy things, you know, everything would have been perfect forever. But we like to think God messed it up. What a sinful thought that is. God didn't mess anything up. The answer to why God did this was that he made us in his divine image, and that image included so many things about God and what God is, and one of those great things is his freedom. I don't see how God could have made Adam in his image and not given him some measure of freedom. Because if he made the man and said, do this and do this and don't do this, and the man had no choice to to be able to say, yes, I'll do what I'm told, or no, I won't, how meaningful would his responses to God be? It would be as if God was making puppets, marionettes, you know, with the strings as you manipulate them, and you lift the string, and his foot goes up, or his arm goes up, and his mouth opens. Without some freedom, man would not be made in God's image. He'd be a puppet. And his response of worship would be not one he chose to make, but one he was compelled to make. And what is the first and greatest commandment of the Lord as the Scripture goes on and develops and tells us? The first and greatest commandment is that we love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. You don't love something when you're compelled to love it. Loving anything or anyone is a free choice. And so this tree of the knowledge of good and evil stands like a sentinel in this garden, I believe, to remind Adam that only God is God. You see, someplace God had to draw a line. And it it didn't have to be a tree, but he had to draw a line so that humanity would have a place to find out, I am man and that is God. God made me, I didn't make him. He asked me to to obey, and I must obey. Now, God could have done this other ways, you know. Uh, He could have planted a great big rock there and said, don't ever touch that rock. Or he could have put a stream there and said, don't ever set foot in that stream or drink from it. There's a myriad of things God could have done, but he 
made a tree. And after having permitted him to do abundant things, he said, don't do this one thing. You see, this divine prohibition to leave this tree alone is very similar to every parent needing to understand the most important word in any parent's vocabulary. Are you ready for it? It's two letters. No. Now, what are parents to do? You know, they bring children into the world. They love their children, of course. They want the best for their children. They want to give their children things. They want to smother their children with love and affection. But in doing that, it's absolutely important that they learn to use one word. No. And it's utterly incredible that you can watch parents who don't know the meaning of that word. And they've never taught their child that word. I'm serious. You know, when we say to our children, no, the best place to play hopscotch is not out on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, or no, you can't have a loaded gun to play with, or any other number of, of more subtle things, we're, what are we saying? We're saying, I love you. I don't want you to play hopscotch on the highway because it will destroy you. This isn't good for you. You don't have the wisdom to handle this. You have to take my authority for now until your wisdom grows. Right now, you have to not do it because I know better. And I honestly tell you, I can watch parents. I'm not an all-knowing parent myself. I'm a fallible human parent. But I can watch young parents from the standpoint of a grandparent and see whether or not at age two or three their child understands no and whether the parent's using no correctly. And I'll tell you what that child will be as a 16-year-old. Because learning that word with firmness and justice and love is the most important thing a parent can do. When God says, obey me in this one thing, you see, his motive isn't, Oh, Adam, I was glad to make you happy, but now I'm going to make you unhappy. No, not at all. His motive was a father's love. Adam, let me teach you what it means to be my obedient son, and our wonderful relationship will go on and on, and you will thrive in it by obeying me. Think about a goldfish. A goldfish, you buy a bowl, you know, your child wants a goldfish, you don't want a full-fledged aquarium, so you just get the bowl. And so let's see how this goes. You know, we won't invest a lot of money in it. And you put the goldfish in the bowl, and the goldfish, is he free? Well, of course he's free. He can swim around, do all kinds of things within that bowl. He's perfectly happy. He's free to enjoy life within the boundaries established for the goldfish. But suppose the goldfish decides, oh, I think there's a better kind of freedom available to me. Let me leap out of this restrictive bowl, and I will enjoy freedom and independence. And that's his last gasping thought as he thrashes on the carpet and expires. Because the goldfish can't have that kind of freedom and live. The goldfish that transgresses the bowl will surely die, if you will. Well, it's humorous, but it's the same thing that's here. The Lord says, I created you to be free in my presence, to know me and love me and respond to me. And you'll do that as my child, trusting me, believing me, relying on me. 
And so what we have in Genesis 2 is what you might call the covenant of life. God makes a covenant. He says, look, I've made life for you. It's pretty wonderful as you're finding out. But what you need to do is trust me and obey me, and you'll enjoy it perpetually. The blessing of this covenant is life without suffering in it, life without unemployment in it, life without cancer, life without graveyards. And Adam, I've made it for you, and there's that beautiful tree that represents it. But if you choose not to have it my way, then there's a penalty in the covenant. And the penalty is the exact opposite of life. No life. Death. The reversal of my intended blessing. Death first of your spirit and then of your body, as we will see later in Genesis. Here is God's probation made for the good of mankind, not to harm him, you see, but to bless him in a proper relationship. God put Adam in our place to make a crucial decision. And we leave him not having made the decision, but the tragedy is we know what he's going to decide. And we know it's not going to be the right choice. We know what disasters will come in chapter 3 as the fall into sin comes and as they take the fruit of that tree. And it wasn't the fruit poisoning them. It was disobedient and, and disobedience and guilt and shame that came upon them. But you know what? God also knew that you and I would fail in our probation. It wasn't all Adam's fault. Because we're faced with the same choices, and we make the same choice as Adam did. But thanks be to God, that doesn't end the matter. Because last of all, as we close today, I need to tell you that the gospel of God's grace, which enfolds throughout the remainder of the Bible, is all about how to regain our lost access to the tree of life. That's why it's there in Revelation 22. Because in the end, it's regained again. And its wonderful benefit will be ours forever. How is that so? Well, it's so because of another biblical garden. Can you think of what that garden might be? It was called Gethsemane. And in that garden, there was another probation going on as the one who the Bible calls the second Adam, Jesus, God's Son, who lived always in actual and implicit obedience to the will and word of his Father. If the Father said, do this, my Son, Jesus didn't debate over it. He did it. But then in that garden called Gethsemane, he agonized with a choice. Would he go to that awful, ugly tree planted outside the gate of Jerusalem and do what the Father had called him to do or not. And in that garden, Jesus made a choice about a tree. And 1 Peter 2.24 says he bore our sins in his body on the tree so we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You see, Jesus won access for us once more to the tree of life. He won access on behalf of everyone who trusts in what he did there.
and what he accomplished, the victory that overcame Adam's defeat. The Scripture says that sin and divine judgment and eternal death flowed to all of humanity from Adam's wrong choice at a historic tree. But it also says righteousness and forgiveness and eternal life are available to us from another real tree on the hill of Calvary. And before God, every one of us today needs to choose. We absolutely need to choose the right tree. Be sure you do that. Let's bow in prayer. Father, the wonders of your Scripture are great indeed. The symbolism it bears, but not merely symbols as in a story. Symbols that tell us the truth of what you did in time and eternity. And while we think of this tree where Adam was going to fail, it wasn't enough that he had all that blessing. He still wanted something else. We know we failed with him. How we thank you and praise you for the tree where we can succeed and triumph and through Jesus Christ have access once more to that inner sanctuary to dwell with you and love you and enjoy you. Dear Father, there's someone today who really hasn't figured all that out. I pray that you would turn that one's face to Christ, to rely on him, to love him, to embrace him, and to know that he is the way into life. We thank you for him. Amen.